Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon. This is Erica Wesley, the Executive Director of the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. For many of you, I'm a new voice, but for others of you, you know exactly who I am. My goal today, and my goal on every other one of our Spotlight on Arts and Culture episodes, is to bring you authentic conversation that discusses how we can expose people to arts and culture across Fairfield County. This is a very important radio um, episode for me today because it's my first one as the executive director. And my goal in the, the forecoming conversations is also to open up discourse that allows all of you as listeners to join me in important conversations that helps to curate arts and culture across Fairfield County. So for some of you, you're probably wondering, who is this new voice? Who is this new person that's taken over this organization? And I'm hoping that you can sit back for a few minutes before we get into our conversation with our special guests and learn a little bit more about Erica Wesley, the executive director and artist. I grew up in the city of Bridgeport, so having this conversation right now at WPKN is something I can check off as one of the goals that I had for myself. I used to go on WPKN's website and say, how can I get a radio show? And guess what? Here we are. And that's a nod to young people in this city who have aspirations to amplify their voice, to tell their story, to be heard on radio waves, to be on YouTube, not for selfish reasons, but to expand the way that people think, to shape shift the narrative of a city like Bridgeport, to build community, and quite frankly, to build themselves. My journey as a literary artist started in second grade. I attended High Horizons Magnet School and I had a teacher, Mrs. Felverbaum, who was by far one of the best educators I've ever experienced. I remember sitting down on a circle rug and there were about 20 to 25 other students. And Mrs. Felverbaum told us that that day we had a special guest and it was a local writer from Fairfield. And I remember when that writer handed me a book and she autographed her name in the cover. And now as an adult, I still feel the warm feelings that came in that moment. And when she read from her book, I decided in second grade that I wanted to be a writer. I had no idea what that would entail. I had no idea how I would accomplish it. So I took receipt papers when I would go to the mall with my mother I took notebook paper, scrap paper, anything I could find my hands on. And from that point forward, I would write. I would write good stories. I would write terrible stories. I would write poems that made sense and a lot of times poems that didn't. But my goal at that age was simply to express myself. And I had teachers along the way, teachers from Bridgeport, that encouraged me to amplify my voice. I won young author uh, competitions in the city of Bridgeport, and I decided to illustrate books. And that's when I started to tell myself, this is more than just writing. I wanted to publish a book. And again, I had no real understanding of what that would mean. I had no real um, strategies on how I would accomplish that. But passion is one of the strongest drivers in my life. Maybe it's the same for you. When I went to college, I was an English major, and I had a professor that encouraged me to write for a local newspaper. And sadly, I did not take her up on that opportunity. It was by far one of the biggest regrets of my life. In that moment, I felt like I was an imposter. I was a young kid coming from a place that at UConn, people had a lot of negative things to say. So I didn't have the confidence that I have today. I didn't have the courage that I have today. And so if you're listening, don't let your dream go deferred. Towards the end of my college um, career, I took a creative writing class. And I took that class because one of my friends in the city of Bridgeport had recently been murdered. And suddenly the words were burning inside of me and they needed to come out. And I remember poem after poem after poem I would submit to my professor. And she would say to me, do something with this. 
big, bold letters in the margin. Always an exclamation point. What was the something she wanted me to do? I didn't really know. And so I graduated. I took a job like most graduates do. I made good money and I was miserable because the words kept coming to me. And the paychecks came too, but they weren't enough to satiate the desire that I had to say something, to say something more. So I enrolled in a writing program at Manhattanville College, and I want to give a big shout out to every single professor at Manhattanville College, because that is a place that altered my life for the greater good forever. Those professors gave me a space to think critically about a city where I was from, and I remember the first time I wrote a poem about the city of Bridgeport. And in a place that looked nothing like home, I was surrounded by people who were my champion. And I became the girl on campus who wrote, quote, the Bridgeport poems. And I got to tell a story about where I'm from. And I was able to engage with other poets, other creative writers, other fiction writers that were writing about home. And for the first time, I felt like I could do something with those poems. I felt like the next step was to publish them and to allow other people to see where I'm from, to see where we are from. I remember the first time I read Natasha Trethewey. She's a former poet laureate of the United States. She's from um, Atlanta, Georgia, and she lived in uh, Mississippi for a while And she wrote a poem that reminded me of Bridgeport. And it's interesting the way that different cities have a unique look and feel, but sometimes the heart is beating the same tune. So I want to read this poem because I hope that it encourages you. I hope it inspires you. And I hope it's also a window into what we will discuss for the rest of this episode. This poem is called Theories of Time and Space. You can't get there from here, though there's no going home. Everywhere you go will be somewhere you've never been. Try this. Head south on Mississippi 49, one by one, mile markers ticking off, another minute of your life. Follow this to its natural conclusion, dead end at the coast. The pier at Gulfport where riggings of shrimp boats are loose stitches in a sky-threatening rain. Cross over the man-made beach, 26 miles of sand dumped on the mangrove swamp, buried, terrain of the past. Bringing only what you must carry, tome of memory, its random blank pages. On the dock where you board the boat, For Ship Island, someone will take your picture. The photograph, who you were, will be waiting when you return. And I love this poem because it's really a nod to a city that's changing. And when I think about Bridgeport, I think about a place that is so filled with nostalgia. For those of us that are from Bridgeport, we walk the streets and we think about what used to be. And in my book of poetry, my dad, um, I have a poem where my dad walked me around the city one day when I had writer's block. And he would point out different areas from his generation. This is where we used to get hamburgers at Dutch's for 15 cents. And I'm like, 15 cents? (laughs) Hello, inflation. And then we would walk a different path and he'd show me, you know, train tracks. And so this is a place that has such deep history. And I think about this poem because we're all falling in love with the new iteration of a place that's home. So it's the home we knew and it's the home that we make. And that's the core of this city. It's really the core of me. And I'll read another poem. And this is a poem by me. And it's called Mic Drop. It's the last poem in my book. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Picture four-year-old me. Coco chubby cheeks standing on a stool so I could reach the sink. Collet greens in a salt pool. My tiny hands rubbing leaf to leaf. A cleansing. When I got brave enough, 
I looked over my shoulder to announce to my grandmother, my hands are cold. But don't you know she said to me, you'll be all right, baby. You'll be fine. I was raised to be a woman. I was raised to be strong, to endure the pain because sometimes what you gain tastes so, so good. Like those collard greens I cooked for the first time in my new apartment, they tasted like the ancestors. Each bite called up the women before me. What glory, I thought to myself, splashing red hot on the pile of greens. If Esau's, if Esau's blood cried out to God, I wonder if the soul of black women waft as steam when neck bones on the stove dance the night away. I hope they are proud of me because I stole freedom from a country that never intended to give it to me. Proud because no man can rule me. No man can tame me. I can't be broken. Not even that one time I was down on my knees begging my mother to move her feet. Days after back surgery. Down that long, long hallway the seventh floor of Bridgeport Hospital. I was so scared, but if that didn't break me, nothing will. I will her strength into me because I was raised by a woman who was raised by a woman who was raised to be a woman. Don't you know my mother's maiden name is best? So when I tell you I was born for this, I'm not even lying. And so with that, I hope that all of you have a little bit more of a window into where I'm coming from. I tell people often that my work, the body of work professionally, is at the intersection of art and justice. And I believe that through poetry, through creative writing, there are ways for us to amplify other social issues. So of course I'm here as the executive director of the Cultural Alliance, but I'm also here as an artist. And this is the first time in this role I've been able to share with all of you my passion and my zeal for the way that words come together and the way that words move and push people into positive spaces. And so I welcome you all on this journey to build arts and culture across Fairfield County. And I am so thrilled to be talking to someone today who I believe does just that. Art access is so important because there are tons of people across Fairfield County who still don't know how to enter into creative communities. And often art can feel elite and exclusive. And the same way there were educators in my life that opened the door to fine arts, there are everyday people in our communities that are doing the same. And so I admire our next voice. Um, I admire the work that she does because I believe that it's making deep impact on um, a really important population here in the city of Bridgeport and beyond. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome, we can do like a drum roll, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> we would love to welcome Jennifer Reynolds Kay, who is the director of the Housatonic Museum of Art. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, I mean, it's hard to follow such an incredibly powerful story and poetry that you read. Um, it makes me wish I was from Bridgeport. It really does. Um, I'm actually from California, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, it's been quite a path of 20 years um, getting to this role as the director of the Housatonic Museum of Art. I didn't grow up going to museums or I didn't have a second grade teacher who inspired me in the way that that you did. In fact, it wasn't until um, college when I, I was at UC Berkeley and I realized that I wanted to learn about history, but I was a very visual learner. Mm. I tried to take a history class, like a straight, you know, history. It was so much reading. I could not, I couldn't do it. Um but I took an art history class and there was something about looking at images and having them speak to me, even though they were then projected slides, um, no PowerPoint at the time, just slides projected 
against a screen that really spoke to me. And I, I felt a, that I was learning from those artists about history in the way that made sense to me. So I did art. I studied art history. I did my BA in art history. Um, I also did a dual degree in film studies. Mm. Um, thinking art history was the more practical field because there is, of course, museums as our affiliate industry. Um, and after graduating, I had a turning point of going to either law school or getting a PhD in art history. And law school costs money, and the PhD program was free, um, fully paid for with a stipend. So I made the somewhat practical choice to uh, <laughs> follow a PhD in art history at the University of Southern California. And I'm very happy that I did. Um, I There were definitely times of struggle and challenge, but um, that made me stronger. And during my undergrad, I and graduate school, actually, I, I knew that I needed to be practical. So I always did internships in museums. Um, that included the Getty Research Institute, SFMOMA. Um, I was at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. I just couldn't get enough of learning about museums. And, and I, you know, I just really loved doing research, um, education, programming. That's really my background. And I was lucky enough after my PhD um, to get a postdoc at the art gallery in the education department. Um, from there, I went on to be the curator of education academic outreach at the Yale Center for British Art. Forgot to mention that I moved from California <laughs> to New Haven um, with uh, two 10-month-olds in tow wow. with my husband and our cat and my in-laws. Um, so it was quite a move and a culture shock. Mm -hmm. um, but I settled into New Haven and we've been there ever since. Um, I also think I'm a pretty scrappy person. So after um, my time at the YCBA, I was teaching at Manchester Community College, saw an incredible job posting mm -hmm. for the director of the Housatonic Museum of Art. And I remember showing it on my laptop to my husband and saying, you know, just having this instinctual feeling that this was my next move. Um, and it's interesting as two new, newish executive mm -hmm. directors, this is my first time in, in this type of role, um, there is that interesting connection to that question of nostalgia, mm. you know, for what the organization used to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm only its third director since, mm. you know, since the founding. Um, so that balancing that nostalgia, wanting to connect to people in that way, but also wanting to sort of like forge my own path and my own spin to things. Totally. So, yeah. I love that. I love that so much. And I think I'm the third director really? as well yeah i'm gonna do my research after this but i think so so there may be something in the number three um but i think that that's that is important you know and so talk a little bit about what makes you like your characteristics as a person your interests, the perfect director for the today museum um, well, I'm grateful that you think of me as the perfect director for Today Museum. Um, I think I'm constantly just trying to improve myself and trying to learn as much as I can. Mm. Um, as I said, I'm scrappy and I'm a hard worker and I'm a go-getter. And I have to learn as a two-person show. So I need to learn everything from how do you do a communication strategy? How do you write Facebook posts and social media? How do you do a fundraising campaign? Um, what is what is the curatorial vision and the exhibition program look like? I teach all the classes that come and visit, all the tour groups. Mm -hmm. um, I work with our incredible collections manager, Charlotte Laughlin, to manage the entire collection of 7,000 works of art, wow. the lar one of the largest community college art collections in the country. Um, at the same time, I feel a real commitment to our students, staff, and Bridgeport community to make sure that the programs that we do and the exhibitions that we have resonate and connect mm -hmm. on a level and are contributing to their their daily lives. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of um, responsibility, but I think it's hitting 
at a good time where I've had leadership opportunities. I've done um, the Getty um, Leadership Institute program. I'm on the board of the Association of Academic Museums and Galleries. So my my skill set and my the challenges are sort of meeting in a, at, at a nice curve. Um, so I'm grateful for that. That's awesome. That's very, very awesome. Well, I'm excited because I think that you are absolutely striking the right chord. Um, And it's important, I think, in this moment because the surge of creativity in Bridgeport right now has an undercurrent. And I think that that undercurrent really is youth culture. I think that young people in this city, and when I say young, we'll just say people 30 and under, Um, But I think that they're curious and a lot of those curiosities we see connecting into art in a really important way. And I think the Bridgeport Art Trail is a good example of that. There were a lot of young people involved. Some young people had their work in galleries. Um, And so I think what you're doing at a community college by curating um, opens the door in a really unique way. So what are some of the initiatives right now? What are some of the programs? Um, and how do you go about creating uh, an exhibition? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to touch a little bit about youth culture, some of our you know, best assets are in our students at CT State Housatonic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an incredible intern right now named Castor Alava, and he does, I mean, he's multi-talented. He'll install an entire show. Mm-hmm. You know, he will help us deinstall an entire show. He will come up with a campaign for our giving day, which is on November 28th for our big fundraiser and do the graphic design and messaging and get the word out. Um, and he's also an entrepreneur. So he's, in, he's and an arts lover and a creative. And so he gives us so much inspiration and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to give as many opportunities to our CT State Housatonic students as possible. So we have a student and faculty exhibition every semester or every, sorry, in the spring semesters. Um, we have our, we have an alumni named Whitney Marshall who does the graphic design for our brochures to give her that experience and exposure, but also giving her eye, like having her lend her eye to us, which is so invaluable. Um, so we, we try to give those work and professional development opportunities to our students. We also have an art club, um, which I help to co-facilitate. Um, and then we have some really cool new initiatives um, with Art Bridges, which is um, an arm of the Alice Walton Foundation, where we have students in an independent study course um, with Professor Olivia Chang and within um, and here at CT State, who is a tonic in a survey class with Professor Sarah Churchill. And the students themselves are curating an exhibition or display, rather, they're curating a display with which they will actually have the art loaned to us from Benville, Arkansas, put on display. And then they will be also responsible for creating peer-to-peer learning and engagement opportunities, which is fully funded by Art Bridges. So here we have students bringing in their voices, their perspectives, their visions, and being able to have that funded um, by a foundation. So so I really believe in trying to do that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, We also had an incredible donor make it possible for us to have an exhibition with Ryaseps students in the Juvenile Review Board program. So working with Thais Williams um, and and Professor Robert Stone III, they did paintings and photographs, and they had a summer exhibition in the Burt Chernow Galleries, and they didn't see themselves as artists before mm-hmm. coming into this. And I remember, um, I don't think I'll ever forget, um, one of the students um, said that their parents had never been hadn't been proud of them mm. in a while. That it had been some time since they got that sense of joy and pride in seeing their the bravery mm-hmm. and the creativity of their child on view. So the more and more we can do those types of programs, the better. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of our exhibition schedule and program is striking a balance between collection shows like the one we have on view called Hidden Gems from the Housatonic Museum of Art, 
on view till February 2nd. So collection shows highlighting the, the depth and breadth of our collection with solo exhibitions. Um, we have a show uh, about the sports photographer Walter Yosh, also from our collection, coming up um, on, in March with a big event on March 6th, um, a big fundraiser with um, former NBA Knicks player John Starks. And then we have a local hero here in Bridgeport, um, Iava Ivovendingo, coming mm-hmm. to do an exhibition that will be a, next fall um, about his work with the Rin- Windrush generation. So we try to really balance well-known artists, um, local well-known artists, national artists, collective group, you know, we, with, with our incredible student voices and artwork, too. So it's a big challenge, <laughs> but, <laughs> You're doing we, it. but we got a lot of space too, because not only do we have art in the Burt Chernow galleries, but we have them all throughout the walls on campus. So many of our displays, including um, a show that's opening Wednesday, November 29th from three to five, um, the indigenous black artist, Kim Weston, her work has just been installed, and that's an incredible show um, of photographs that she takes, these long exposure photographs um, of powwows where the dancer's spirit reveals itself um, through her photographs, and then she she shares that with us. So, so lots of programs, um, events, mm-hmm. exhibitions, so much happening, and it's, it's a lot to juggle, but we try to make it happen. Same, same. I get it. Um, that's amazing, though. And I love the fact that there's special funding for some of these youth initiatives, because I think that this is my my big nudge to anyone that's um, a donor, a funder in philanthropy. Um, youth work needs much more funding, but particularly youth and, and art and art education work. So it's nice that there are um, dollars allocated for you to run that type of program and and to really do it with some sustainability um, because I think that's important. Well, that's new to me too, is, is working with our incredible donors. We have a donor, Elizabeth Frey, who's Mm -hmm. local, who supported the um, Kim Weston show. Um, And then the, the Ryasef exhibition from the concrete I rose um, wouldn't have been possible without um, Eileen Norton um, and her generosity. So we're, we're so grateful to our donors, um, both, big and small mm-hmm. that make this all happen. Love it. So you said Housatonic is the second largest. So it's, I'm still doing my homework, but okay. it's definitely one of the largest. Okay. I like to say, I, I know East LA community college, the Vincent Price museum is quite large. Um, and I'm actually bringing together a group of community college art museum leaders um, and gallery leaders to Bridgeport in October 2024, so we can know for sure, <laughs> and we can t- talk about the big issues around mm-hmm. community college art spaces, um, and that's with the generous support of the Terra Foundation. So how did Housatonic get access to so many art collections? Like, what's the history there? Do you know? Yeah, so um, Bert Chernow, um, Westport hero and Bridgeport hero, um, and his wife, Ann Chernow, who still lives and works and exhibits mm-hmm. in Westport. She's incredible. We have lots of her work on view. Um, Bert had this unique vision, I think, at the time. It was really forward-thinking and that art should be for everyone, mm-hmm. that art, you shouldn't have to go physically to a gallery to see art. That students, whether they're high school students like at the Westport Art Collection or Bridgeport students like at the HMA, should encounter art on a daily basis, like on their way to work, in their professor's office, um, in a conference room, that art should be everywhere. And he created the with, – with that vision in mind, um, he was able to work as an artist himself and an appraiser and – an, an art historian in his own right, um, to have folks donate works to his vision, to create his vision. Um, sometimes there'd be, I believe, a trade or um, other mechanisms, but mostly it was, I believe, people seeing his vision and wanting to support it with art. Um, sometimes you do a show and then ask for a donation of some of the pieces to add to the collection afterwards. But he was so connected to the New York art scene and mm. donors and dealers and collectors. Um, 
So, so that's how it got started. And um, Robin Zella was the second director who, you know, was incredible um, over 20 plus years growing the collection, caring for it, stewarding it, um, doing really incredible exhibitions with local artists um, and nationally known artists like Ansel Adams. So um, it's big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it. You're doing yeah. it. And we're still collecting. If anyone would like... <laughs> that was my next question. So yes, okay. We're still collecting. <laughs> okay. Um, so so that's very exciting. And um, on, um, you know, we, we highlighting some of the generosity of our donors on Giving Day, um, November 28th as well. That's awesome. I think it's so, it is so important to have art everywhere. And I know every time that I go to Housatonic, I'm inspired because whether you're walking out of the bathroom, you know, you're going into a meeting space, you're engaging, your senses are engaging with art. And I think that that is one of the best ways to make art, I don't want to say normal, but just a part of your everyday experience. Uh, And so I'm grateful that there's this collection uh, in Housatonic. And I think that for a variety of reasons, what you're doing is so important. Um, And I know that in 10, 20 years, right? There's going to be a young person that was a part of some of your programming and they'll likely be someone that said, I never thought I'd be a part of maybe arts administration and just engaging with art every day, hopefully can shift their trajectory. And, um, they'll be maybe filling your shoes, my shoes. I'd be very happy to to have someone (laughs) fill these shoes eventually. That's so cool. Um, so when I think about the cultural Alliance, one of the things that, I think about is the power of relationships. And as an organization, organizations that um, are across Fairfield County that are sometimes maybe even are not specifically focused on art, creative businesses, artists themselves, schools, they are so important to how we go about convening, connecting, organizing, um, and moving art and culture forward. So talk a little bit about how relationships come into your body of work and um, specifically maybe touching on how you think about relationships with students at Housatonic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of my mentors in the museum field told me that museums are about relationships. Mm -hmm. And the more and more I'm in museums, the more that is true and rings true. And I think that's true of the cultural sector as well. It's a remarkably small world. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking as someone who comes from the other side of the country, it's not that big. Like there aren't that many art museums, especially academic ones Mm -hmm. like ours. Um, So relationships are so central. Keeping, maintaining those relationships over time is, is critical and um, in thinking about our relationships with our students, um, as I said before, trying to provide them with meaningful professional development opportunities, providing them with opportunities to curate and to get involved in programs and exhibitions is really critical. And then what I found at CT State Housatonic is that Sometimes accessing the students is really done best through their faculty members Mm -hmm. because if you can connect a show or an artwork or display to a course, the students um, have to come. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they have to come, right? Like they don't have a choice Mm -hmm. um, because it's part of their course. And then oftentimes they're writing about an artwork. Um, We had a public speaking course where each student did a five-minute speech about an artwork of their choosing in the Hidden Gems exhibition. Um, It's it's a real – the faculty are so supportive and they're part of the connective tissue between the museum and the students in addition to extracurricular things like the art club. Mm -hmm. So that faculty link is so important and um, I'm trying to develop that. That's actually sort of my – one of the angles like or, or tools in my toolbox that I come in with is academic engagement. So letting our faculty know in advance what shows are coming up, a preliminary checklist, um, opportunities to meet with me to discuss what kinds of course visits or assignments would be a good fit. Um, so, so that's definitely part of that. I'm going to be doing a workshop called, it's like, 
um, teach any class in the museum where it's like stump the director or like mm-hmm. I could you can basically teach any class that CT State Who's the Tonic offers using our collection, whether that's business or economics or history or Spanish or, you know, it doesn't have to be a visual art or art history. So that's going to be a fun workshop. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think also the goal is to continue once folks graduate, right? Like once they leave the visual arts department or they leave Housatonic to then try to find opportunities for them as alumni mm-hmm. and and to keep that connection going. So that's, you know, thinking about those types of relationships, that's sort of a, one of the goals and visions. Nice. <clears throat> I mean, I think in our, in my realm, um, I've been using this phrase cultural organizing, which I don't think is really popular in this area. But when I talk to artists outside of Connecticut, folks can self-identify as a cultural organizer and really just moving ideas together, organizing ideas to whatever end. Um, Sometimes that's policy, but then in other instances, it's really for a program, an event or an activity. I think Skateport is a good example in Bridgeport of like cultural organizing. Um, And so this question is kind of a selfish question because we are both directors. How do you communicate the success of your programs, the success of your work? Because in some ways it's kind of tactile and then in other ways it's not really, right? It's like a cloud that can take many shapes. So when you're communicating with funders or other people who are interested in the in the museum, how do you communicate success? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning how to do that. One one way I've tried to communicate success is by you know obviously photographing and documenting everything, getting the testimonials. But then I I've, I've been starting to put those into books. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether they're, I have some that are hardcover, some that are soft. I think I'm going to make some that are more sort of giveaway pamphlets, but that have those really beautiful photographs, a narrative of some kind, just so that, um, it's a thank you, you know, to mm-hmm. past donors, but also a, a sort of enticement or like a, we're doing really good work and here's like a well curated crafted, you know, um, document of how we're doing that, mm-hmm. um, I think it's it's really hard to even quantify success when you think about how many students have come to the museum. We actually struggle with that because our museum is the entire campus. So I could say that, sure, 3,000 students engaged with our museum today, but that's not – what does right. that even engagement look like? Is that passing by a painting? Is right. it writing a comment in the visitor book? Is it taking a picture and and posting it on Instagram? Like, it's very hard to measure and quantify Mm -hmm. that. So, um, so it's something that I'm looking for tips too. (laughs) I mean, other than press releases about the big grants and initiatives and exhibitions, in in so many ways, it's about the smaller Mm -hmm. impact that matters. And that might just be a seed that doesn't really, you know, blossom till five, 10 years down the line. But I think that's okay. I think I need to kind of release myself of that responsibility too. Mm -hmm. Um, And just say that folks will come and they'll have an experience and hopefully it will have planted some sort of seed in them. Um, And they'll water it somehow and just kind of release that pressure. Because there's a lot of pressure in our roles too, right? So much. much. And some of it does come from self, but I think there's still the the outside pressure when you're directing an initiative, an organization, to do so in a way that is quantifiable. And I think the struggle that I've been having is that art and culture really, it's so, um, it's about how we feel, how we function, how we coexist. And it's difficult to put a number to that. You can put a word to it. So I'm grateful that that's kind of the lane that I live in and I think in. But I do think that there's still a little pressure to find those numeric um, proof points of success. And I love what you were saying about what's engagement. What does that really mean? Because I think we're all engaging with art. Um, And I know for me, if you're governing... (laughs) A countywide organization, I can say 
someone just drove by a mural, right? They're, they're participating in community in that way. Um, but then sometimes I think that there's a pressure to have something a bit more specific. So I like what you're saying about releasing the pressure. And yeah. I'm going to do that because we don't need it. <laughs> we don't need the pressure. But I think as as people who review grants and are implicated in, you know, potentially grant making too, it's the types of questions we ask for, the types mm-hmm. of metrics that are there and, and some may not apply and we need to be okay with things right. not applying. That's true. Um, so I think that's another, it's a, it's a constant question of, I'm trying to give you an accurate figure of our visitation, but it's, you know, the online free ticket isn't going to capture right. the we- the wealth and the breadth of that experience. Totally. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about uh, two months in, right, there's a lot to, to think about, but it's also leveraging video. Um, and I know that there are some donors that love to see photos of events and videos of events. And I think it's one of the better ways to capture at least the culture piece when you see people gathering and you see the positive energy and how excited people are to participate in something, it gives, I think, more, um, just more understanding of the value versus trying to delineate that in a way that's numerical. Because I could say there were a hundred people there, or I can show you what a hundred people in a room look like. Right. And feels like, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I believe that Colorful Bridgeport um, is doing a campaign around video mm-hmm. um, with Edwin Escobar for the holidays to really and use video to capture the what does the small business feel like? Yeah. What is the thing they're most famous for, well known for? So we were lucky to participate in that and then hopefully use that video for other purposes too. I'm sure you will. So, what advice do you have for young people? who they see you in this role and maybe they're really excited about it and inspired, um, but they don't yet have the concept of arts administration. So what advice would you give to young people that may be curious about having a role like yours in their future? Yeah. So this was the one question you gave me in advance (laughs) that I struggle with because... I think because arts administration is an inherently unstable field in a way, like it's not like, like economically there, it's a challenge, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. when I was talking about making practical choices to do internships or to realize that museums, at least there are jobs in those fields, like I think it's important to be honest with folks entering the creative sector that there may be great financial opportunities for you. And it may take you a while Mm -hmm. to get to that great stable job Mm -hmm. and there may be sacrifices along the way. So I, I think all that to say that I, I wholeheartedly encourage our young people to enter this field. There is nothing more rewarding than waking up every day and being in this role and feeling so lucky to be in this position, but it has taken me 20 years to get here, right? Mm-hmm. Like this wasn't an overnight thing. I was in grad school for seven years. <laughs> um, that's a long time. Yeah. And that's a lot of lost income. Like to mm-hmm. your point mm-hmm. about choosing a, a, a paycheck over passion, mm-hmm. the other way is challenging too. Um, and I'm very lucky to have the privilege of a family growing up in a family that could, you know, support me in different ways um, financially and a partner who also can support or or sort of, um, especially in grad school, was able to support. Um, So it's a long road. So be very patient, Mm -hmm. have that North Star, say yes to every opportunity. I mean, I think that I I said yes to auditing a class in curatorial studies that ended up with a posi- with a research position that ended up with a postdoc. Mm-hmm. You know, I said yes to a internship that ended up into a maternity leave like position that ended into someone who could write me a letter of recommendation for graduate school. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you want to keep those relationships. You want to say yes to things, even if the payoff isn't right there. Mm-hmm. Like even if you're not, I'm not quite sure how this position will help me in the long term. But saying yes and raising your hand and being scrappy and 
you know, just following that North Star, you know, that, that that's kind of how I've led my way. And I think um, the soft skills too. So like being kind, mm-hmm. <laughs> smiling, mm-hmm. treating everyone, you know, like a future friend or relative, you know, with that love and that openness, because that will go a long way too. Um, so I think just saying, saying yes, as much as you can, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it kills me when you were telling that story about how you didn't write, do that writing, yeah. it, you know, it's like, I feel like you say you have more regret for things you say no to than for things you say totally. yes. And then like realize it's not for you. And then like after six months, you kind of like, you know, phase it out. Absolutely. I love that you're, we're kind of getting here. This is could become a part two because I completely agree. It took me a while to get to that place. When I was in grad school, I did say yes to everything. And so I remember vividly my writing mentor, you know, he's like, hey, can you come with me to Governor's Island? And I just need someone to like work this table. And I literally like my mom came with me because we had to drive to New York. Then we had to take the ferry. Um, Then we had to get in a taxi. I was exhausted by the time I got there. But that yes turned into so much more. And so, you know, I even at that time, I was working a full time job, driving to Manhattanville for school, um, just in the rip and run of life as a 20 something year old. And I'm like, I love this thing. Don't know where it's going, but I'm just going to keep figuring it out. And the yes moved to another yes. And then I would move to another yes. And so for me, I knew, I always thought I would start an arts organization. I had mm. never necessarily saw myself working for one, like coming into one that was ready made. So my trajectory was really nonprofit management because I needed to eat, right? And I'm like, I need a career. I need to be able to support myself. And before I got married, all of my residual income would be, you know, dumped into buying books and notebooks and going to different writing workshops. I remember going to Cave Canem, which is, was the first black poetry um, writing house in the country. Mm. And I remember being so grateful that I could afford to get to Brooklyn and literally like I'm sitting among the greats, this young girl from Bridgeport, where like a lot of people don't even know about Cave Canem. And so I was thankful for this nonprofit career that helped fund my curiosities and it helped fund the the thing that I needed, right? The vehicle to make those relationships and to build those soft skills. And so when this opportunity came around, it really was just saying yes again, because I thought, I don't really know what this is. I don't know what this is going to become. But I'm going to say yes to it. And so I'm grateful that I could. I'm grateful that, you know, I'm able to make a living while making an impact. And and I think that that's important. Um, But again, I don't really know what the next yes will be. I think for me, which I think probably similar to you, it's like we're figuring things out every day. It doesn't necessarily come with a blueprint, but the passion is such a driver. Um, And so... Whenever I find myself in some kind of like executive conundrum, I'm just like, okay, just you got this. Be curious. I would say that's one of my um, Mm. pieces of advice for young people. Be curious because you never know what's on the other side of thinking outside of the box. So a lot of times I try to pull back from what's expected of me. And, and rethink it and, and find a new methodology that allows me to just try something different. Maybe not everything, but something. Um, and so, so far that's been working. Um, we'll see how long it works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a, I think both of us going back to the beginning of our conversation are filling really big shoes mm-hmm. and things have been done a certain way and for so long mm-hmm. and we're trying to honor 
what everyone before us has done. But when we face those executive decision director decisions, be informed by the past but not held back mm-hmm. and have that belief in our instincts. Yes. Um, that that we come with our own set of experiences and knowledges and and mentors um, who who will help us make that decision. And whether it's a right or wrong, we can be curious about that decision, going mm-hmm. back to your idea of curiosity of like, why did I make that? What did I learn from that? Um, let's test an experiment with something different mm-hmm. or grow on that. That really worked. How can we grow on that? Um, and so... I think that's, I think that's one of the challenges of being in a leadership position of an arts organization, is who are, who are in your inner circle and who do you turn to when you have those questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, I feel like I'm still pulling together my circle. Like folks are coming in and out at different times, and yeah. I, uh, um, I'm excited for you to be part of this circle. And I'm. I, I said yes to this interview mostly because of you. You know, Thank I mean, I, 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 I'm very fond of David. I think he's done incredible work. I, I think the CAFC is incredible, but I'm very curious about, you know, where you're going to take it and mm-hmm. what that new shape will, will look like. Well, I'm glad you're curious. I'm curious too. No, um, I think, I'm hoping to just use my personality, really. You know, of course, there's those hard skills of, you know, being a nonprofit leader. But my goal, really, with this organization is to leave an imprint that um, really is marked by authentic leadership. And I try very hard to show up as myself, um, which isn't always easy, right? I think as a Black woman leading a nonprofit organization, there's always an expectation, but the expectation that I have of myself is that I can be happy with Erica when I close my workday, right? And so that means I show up with all of my flavor, um, all of my personality, all of the the things that make me me. And that's part of why I really wanted in this episode to give that perspective of where I'm coming from, um, because as a writer... And as someone that observes community the way that I do, uh, that informs my work. And I've always been able to take the pieces of the community that I love, take pieces of um, how this place has nurtured me, and to use those lived experiences as one of the core tenets of my work. So I could not lead well if I don't lead well with authenticity and remind myself that you know, there are other people like you coming from this place that have aspirations. You're a role model for someone, whether you recognize that or not. Um, you are motivating to someone, whether you recognize that or not. And and I use that as fuel. So we'll see where the organization goes. I have some ideas. Um, I wouldn't be me if I didn't have some opinions too. So hopefully I'll foster all of that into some exciting initiatives and We'll keep what's good and, and we'll just build um, on top of that. So thank you for coming. My I'm pleasure. so happy this hour went by pretty fast. <laughs> good. Yeah. Well, I congratulations know. on your first show. Thank you. Yes. Throws invisible confetti. Um, and so we are going to wrap up. I'm Erica Wesley and I am the executive director of the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County And it is November 2023, and you have just listened to the Spotlight on Arts and Culture on WPKN 89.5 FM.